welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. You have me and of course the fabulous Christopher is always by my side. Let's see if we've got them today. Today we have uh, Gemma Mason, who is a historian who specialises in the Ottoman Empire between the 15th and 19th century, and she's here today to give us a, a rough overview of this subject, as well as talk about her thesis on uh, the genissary, the urban genissary in 18th century Istanbul. So, uh, Gemma, welcome to History Hack. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm very excited. We've not done anything on the, I don't think we've done any podcast on the Ottomans, so it's a nice gap that we're going to finally be filling. We're going to do some general history and then we're going to talk about your thesis, really. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I'm kind of interested before we get, jump into this, you could have picked any area of history, number one. Okay. Mm-hmm. I don't know why you don't do World War Two because obviously, you know, we you know, you know that's the best part of history, right? <laughs> Why did you pick the Ottomans? I mean, I know you and I talked about this mm. privately, but to the listeners, why? Okay. Okay, so I love history because I love stories. I've always been like a reader. I read recreationally as well as for research purposes, which is why, you know, my house is full of books, as you can see. But when I, so I went to do history at university because it was always some kind of popular culture whether it was based in history or reference history made me go oh I want to know more about that and then I would go into the historical research so the year I started my undergraduate a book came out and purely based on the cover and the title I thought it would be appropriate to buy it it was a novel called The Historian by a woman called Elizabeth Kostova it was her first novel and I thought oh I'm going to be a historian I'm doing history at university this is appropriate so I bought it, and ironically, because of the demands of the degree, didn't actually get it read until the summer break after my third year between like my undergrad and my master's. And uh, the historian is basically, well, it's a kind of updated version of Dracula, uh, Bram Stoker's novel. It's written in the same sort of idea, letters and diaries and stuff placed in chronology. But it does... It, focuses on the historical figure and it talked about the Ottoman Empire a lot. The characters sort of travelled to Istanbul and they got involved in, in Ottoman history. And coming up through the school and the undergraduate curriculum I did, it was very uh, Anglo-centric, very sort of Western Eurocentric. So at school you did the Tudors, the Victorians and World War Two, and then the next year you did the Tudors, the Victorians and World War Two again, just in a more complex manner. So I went to university and I was looking to do more sort of early modern, more different things. But even then, we were very sort of Western Eurocentric. And I was aware of the Ottoman Empire as being over there somewhere in relation to the history I was studying. So when I had this summer holiday, rather than taking a summer holiday because I get bored if I'm not learning stuff, after reading the historian, I started reading sort of Ottoman history and nonfiction and things like that. And I thought, well, this is really interesting. And I haven't really learned about this before. So then when I went into my master's, I did an independent study and a thesis on sort of Ottoman history. And that made me go, yeah, this is, I really like this. This is what I want to do. So that's why I then went into a PhD study uh, at Birmingham 
on on Ottoman studies. So essentially, the power of literature put me into Ottoman history, and the historian is still my favourite book that I obnoxiously buy all my friends for Christmas to make them read it. So, but, so the the Ottomans were like one of the most enduring empires though through Europe, along with the Habsburgs. But where whereabouts do they come from? So yeah, a very long afternoon of power, uh, as one of Kosovo's characters says. So they essentially have their origins in the nomadic Turkmen of the uh, the plains. It was essentially uh, one one tribe with a ruler uh, called Osman, who would be known as um, Osman Ghazi or Osman the First. So essentially, um, Osmanlı is the Turkish word for um, um, Ottoman, literally meaning of Osman or of the House of Osman. So, because he began it, and he basically started this period of uh, conquest, of acquiring land, of expansion, bringing a lot of different areas, tribes under his rule, becoming sort of quasi-centralised in a way, and from then on, right down through his sons, it just kept growing, uh, taking a lot of Anatolia, Byzantine lands in the early centuries, until they until they became um, centralised with early capitals being sort of in the east of the countries of Bursa and things like that. And then uh, we come to Constantinople slash Istanbul later, and that's a really big turning point in Ottoman history. And that's kind of where I sort of pick up my main interest is with the 1453 conquest. So that's kind of like their origins. They're very sort of nomadic and rural uh, tribesmen to begin with. What century are we talking about for the Ottomans? Is this like... I don't know, first, second century, or are we going something slightly more modern, like 18th, 19th, 20th? So the um, origin among the uh, the tribesmen, you're talking 13th century. So about 1299 is, is, is kind of the standard date we give from sort of the reign of Osman. Um, and then sort of down through his most immediate sons, then 1453 would be when Constantinople was taken. So it's kind of that period where we're talking about the the early empire and the first rulers would be 1299 to 1453. And then, as I said, the conquest of Constantinople sort of ushers in a whole new sort of era of um, Ottoman history. So you're bringing in the word Constantinople. And the reason I'm sitting here laughing slowly but surely behind the screen, the reason is, is that in Polish, Mm -hmm. you know, you've got loads of um, uh, what they call tongue twisters and things like that. And one of mm-hmm. the biggest, most complicated tongue twisters comes from Constantinople, right? Oh. And it translates as girl from Constantinople, right? And I still can't do this without having to read it. So you've got to bear with me because I've been trying to Google this to read this, right? Okay. Constantinople, Lanchekovian, Mieczka. Jesus Christ. Constantinople. Oh, hold on, hold on. Constantinople, Lanchekovianetra. Jesus. Anyway, so lots of words. Yeah, you need you need a lot of phlegm to get through that. Uh, so it's uh, it's it's it just I can't do it. I could do other Polish tongues, but just not this one. So anybody who's Polish that's listening to me, listen to how I fucked that one up. Do not judge me. It is one of the hardest ones to do. Anyway, the, the only the only Polish word I can say is um, thank you. Uh, otherwise, I depend on our friend Magda, who lives in Gdansk, to help me with all things Polish. So Anyway, moving on from my yes. digression. I know that Chris probably has about 65 million questions, because Chris likes a bit of the Ottomans. Don't you, Chris? Yeah, my, mine's mainly 1915, with the fleet trying to puncture through the Dardanelles, but that's about as far as I get. <laughs> well, uh, World War One Ottomans, yeah. 
Hold on, yeah. wait. Let's... World War One. Otto... Wait, 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 wait. Yeah. Yeah, Gallipoli. Come on. Oh yeah. Hold on, that was the Ottomans. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Mesopotamia. Palestine. The Ottoman Empire existed until I mean the Republic was only founded in like 1922. So when I say they lasted a long ass time, they lasted a long ass time. Ah. Which is why yeah. I have to pick my specific little. I'm gonna do this bit because you know specialising in a certain period is pretty important because there's there's a lot of it you you know and it's big geographically speaking. So yeah, you do have to find your your place. Oh Jesus. Okay, so let's talk about some of the most important. I mean, you just said this. It was a long ass time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what? How many? How many hundreds of okay. years? We got what? So 1299 to 1922, let's say, to be inclusive. I can't do mathematics. 60, 600 years? Yeah, 1299. Seven. Um, yeah, almost seven. Like six, six and a half, say six, yeah, about six and a half centuries of existence. Right. Before it became, before it became the Republic of Turkey. Okay. So let's say give or take 700 years of history, right? Mm hmm. Within, Can you talk us through some of the most important, for example, key dates that that people should know about? Well, um, obviously I've talked about the origins where we kick off 1299 with Osman. And again, my next kind of like major date, I mean, there's a few battles, um, sort of 1389, I think it's a child around, this is my... Hold on, are um, there any naval battles? Naval battles. Um, No, we're mostly talking sort of um, land-based in the early empire. I can get onto the Ottoman Navy later because I did do a paper on this. Oh, this is going to be very excited. There's booty things. There's booty things. It's mostly sort of like um, grabbing land sort of in the east, Anatolia and former Byzantine lands. I say they were sort of nomads from the plains. So they kind of like started where they were and sort of like moved outwards grabbing power. My key, as I say, the key date I pick up on is 1453, which is Mehmed II, also known as Mehmed the Conqueror, or in Turkish, Mehmed el-Fatih. He takes Constantinople from the Byzantines. Um, at that point, Constantinople literally is all that's left of the Byzantine Empire. If you think about sort of rolling up a rug to to get something that's on it, that's how sort of Mehmed approached the taking of Constantinople, is just capture everything up to it, then get the city. The city was the big prize. Um, and there's sort of a larger discussion to be had about how sort of the name changed from Constantinople to Istanbul. I did do a paper on that as well, um, about how that gradual name change happened. So 1453, Mehmed takes the city. And this is sort of generally, if you're going with the traditional narrative of empire, you see the uh, the golden age. So you see sort of um, a lot of um, sultans acquiring a lot of land. You see... Um, the main sultans like Suleiman the Magnificent from uh, 1520. He, you know, his reign. He's also known as Suleiman the Lawgiver. So really consolidating a lot. It was this age of plenty. It was um, also the era of the Sultanate of Women, sort of 1500s, 1600s, where women in the imperial household began to exercise quite a lot of influence. So the mothers and the wives and the um, courtesans of the sultans. So that's something that people discuss whether it was a good or bad thing but then we get let me see 1570 well there's something naval uh the battle of lepanto we're talking early modern naval stuff 
that's not something I've really looked at, but it was a significant battle between the Ottomans and um, the it's Venetians, I think. Yes, so that's some early modern naval stuff for Chris there. 1571, not 1517, I got the one and the seventh back. But um, this was part of the Ottoman Habsburg Wars, because, yes, the Ottomans were consistently at war. This was a very, very sort of huge, it was basically sort of infantry on floating, floating battlegrounds, essentially, uh, the ships. So, Chris, do you have a comment on something that's early modern? The Battle of Lepanto? I think I have a book on that, so I'm just rummaging through my shelf to find it. <laughs> Chris is getting excited. Oh my god, you've got Chris excited about some naval stuff. This was this was a a, a major Ottoman defeat uh, as well, so that's why it kind of made history. Yeah, uh, Empires of the Sea by Roger Crowley. He's got Final Battle in the Mediterranean. Um, yes, I've got I've got Empires I'll have to read of the it Sea. <laughs> yeah, um, and largely yeah, uh, the, um, a lot of what I looked at on. Um, sort of Ottoman naval stuff was the Ottomans were really good at sort of um, outsourcing and recognising power and buying it in it didn't matter who you were, where you were from sort of your language, your nationality, your faith, if you had a talent or a skill the Ottomans would, you know, have you um, have you for it, make you an offer for it. And they got very involved in the Barbary Corsairs of North Africa in the early modern period uh, particularly, you might know the name Barbarossa, was I mean, technically, an um, Ottoman admiral, and you can visit his memorial still in modern-day Istanbul. Hold on, so. hold on. There was an actual guy named Bob. The only Barbarossa I know is Operation Barbarossa, obviously, which was yes. the World War Two invasion of uh, the Soviet Union. So there was an actual guy called Barbarossa. Hey, Redin. Hey, Redin Barbarossa, yeah. Ottoman admiral. Redbeard. Died in 15, yeah, Redbeard. Yeah, he died in 1546. Um, he was originally Greek, yet he was a Corsair and later an Admiral of the Navy, and he was very involved in, in securing sort of Ottoman control of the Mediterranean throughout the 16th century. So yeah, if you're talking about sort of, you know, Operation Barbarossa being a big naval thing, that's why it's, it's, it's probably named after this guy. That's interesting. I did not know that. There you go. Yeah. See, I see World War II modern historian learning something here, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, where did you think the name came from originally? I don't know. They or do you think it was just made up? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like, I don't know. They, I mean, the, to be honest, the British, uh, according to my friend, uh, Sam Napton, she works on displaced person, displaced people, for example, post-war. And she said the best operation names were brought up by the British. Like, for example, Operation Parrot. Yeah. Okay. That's like really random. So Operation Barbarossa for me was just that. Okay. Okay. Anyway, yeah, my, my random. Yeah. No, I mean, I just, I just always think about Operation Mincemeat because there's a rather hilarious uh, stage play about that at the moment. Anyway, moving on. Yes. Well, unless, so, Chris, unless Chris wants to jump in and, and throw his favourite operation in just there, because I think we're talking over the poor lad. <laughs> Sorry, um, Chris. I, I'm, I'm going to go with. I'm, just because I like uh, Pennywise the Clown and because it's about U-boats, Operation Deadlight is uh, the Navy sinking of all the uh, German U-boats in ni- after 1945. I knew you'd bring in something naval. Yeah, why not? A- and Scary Clown. And Scary Clown. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, right, okay, anyway. Back on topic. Yes, so, um, yeah, key, key dates, key people, uh, 1622, there was a very famous regicide in the Ottoman Empire, um, Osman II, also known as Osman the Young, or Genç Osman in Turkish, killed in 1622, he was, he'd been Sultan since 1618, he was 17 years old, 
that young. Uh, and the, and this was supposed to be a sort of a catalyst for a lot of people, say, sort of the decline of the Ottoman Empire. It went downhill from there. I think he was, he was leaving, um, ostensibly, I think he was going to go on some sort of pilgrimage, but a lot of people were of the opinion the Sultan's fleeing the capital and he's going to, you know, turn on us and he's going to start, you know, put down roots elsewhere. So they got rid of him. So that was kind of like a big socioeconomic turning point because throughout the 16th, um, 1600s, you also see kind of economic crisis, uh, coinage debasement, all that kind of stuff. And then moving into the 1700s, which is sort of more my century, you see, first of all, early on, we have what they call the tulip era from 1718 to 1730. That's meant to be this just really decadent period of consumerism and, and flowers and sweets and nice fabrics and nice pottery and all kinds of stuff. And um, again, detractors have said this decadence is a sign of the decline from being these sort of, you know, lean, mean, conquesting warrior, you know, um, um, civilization that they were. They were just becoming stagnant. So that's kind of like a period that's kind of under under discussion a lot in the historiography. Uh, you also see coming into the 18th century a shift in Ottoman sort of international relations. I mean, they maintain warfare, particularly with um, with the Safavids, but pertaining to Europe, there's a lot more diplomacy. So we start seeing sort of European travel accounts from um, that date. So people like the ambassador's letters to Constantinople, uh, that kind of thing. So we do start getting some more sort of direct sources instead of of sort of hearsay. But 1683, again, another key date, the Second Ottoman Siege of Vienna, uh, it hadn't been taken in um, earlier, 1520, uh, the Ottomans failed to take the city. They failed to take it again in 1683, and this time, the uh, Grand Vizier, who had been the commander of the Ottoman armies, was um, executed for it. The idea that he was sort of very corrupt and very sort of wanting to take the power and actually exercising more power of the Sultan and saying he's acting in the interest of the Sultan. He's called a uh, Kara Mustafa or Black Mustafa, and he um yeah he 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 goes down to a little bit of a villain in Ottoman history. But I say it's really, in my opinion, this pushback from Vienna is where the Ottomans sort of stop making sort of significant land gains and they start sort of, think of it like a pendulum swing, sort of Ottoman land gain going into Europe. They hit Vienna and that's when it starts to swing back, when there starts to be opposition and when they sort of stop expanding. So that's at another significant date. Can I add and something again, here? Sorry, yeah? only because while you're talking, I'm Googling, because obviously it's not my time period, so obviously Google is my friend. And I just realised... That mm-hmm. the Ottomans and the Poles had a thing. Yeah, so this, um, yes, so this, the, particularly on the 1683 siege of, um, Vienna, I see, um, well, uh, Jan Sobieski, who is, um, the great, uh, Polish king. And I actually, when I was visiting my friend in Gdansk, I found a statue of him and have my picture taken in front of it. So there's a picture of me somewhere on Facebook and put this statue going like this. Going, I found Ottoman history in Poland. Um, being very well, excited. You've got to come to Warsaw. There's so much stuff about it because, I mean, the siege of Vienna was uh, is very deep rooted in Polish history. But yeah, I just thought I brought that in because you're, you're you're speaking and I'm kind of bulbs are going off at the time period. Yeah, it's amazing just how 
you know, how present Ottoman history is without us knowing it. I mean, well, I'm going to come back. We can yeah. do this. We can do the siege of Vienna because you can come on my pole position and we can do stuff. No, about. I did. I did. I wrote a whole chapter in my masters on the siege of Vienna about the key players and their motivations and stuff. So absolutely, I mean, I'd be. Yeah, I'll do that. Let's do pole position. But no. So um, but I did mention sort of this whole Polish connection and Jan Sobieski to uh, my Polish friend, and she said, "Yeah, I don't know much about him other than he was one of the big kings." And I'm like, "Yeah, pretty." pretty major and I always think about when he brought the relief to the siege of Vienna it's like you know in um, Lord of the Rings where Gandalf comes to relieve Helm's Deep it's kind of like that image of like Sobieski bringing in all the relief cavalry to sort of rescue um, the um, Vienna under siege so that's um, yes so yeah Poland absolutely absolutely a thing and then getting into the sort of late 18th century again my period you see um salem the third big sultan for uh, reformation he's attempting to modernize the army um he encounters some pushback on that because a lot of people think well a lot of conservative um particularly religious leaders didn't like modernizing they saw it sort of westernizing and a bit heathen so um he faced some challenges there but then um sort of into the start of the 19th century, which is sort of where my area of specialism ends, you start seeing um, some more sort of uprising, some more pushback against um, Ottoman rule in some of these lands. So countries in the Balkans start pushing back, areas of Greece start pushing back, you start seeing more um, uprising, you start seeing loss of Ottoman territory. And so throughout the 19th century, you have a period known as the Tanzimat, which is reform, where they're trying to sort of reform sort of regulations on land and who owns land and and basically all the changes that they're encountering. Uh, and there is a lot more modernization, sort of technological. There's a lot of dress reform in the 19th century where costumes become more more Western than before. Um, so, yeah, a very very sort of significant changes and this just keeps going right up until you know you get uh the young turks you get sort of a lot more modernization ottoman involvement in the first world war and then um ataturk who comes along and most significantly i think in in my opinion as a historian is the language reform because he latinizes the alphabet because ottoman turkish is written in an arabic script and is a combination of Turkish and Persian and Arabic, and it contains vocabulary and grammar from all three of those languages. Whereas the reform into modern Turkish, the alphabet is Latinized. Uh, you get a lot of uh, purging of the Arabic and Persian loan words, and modern Turkish has more loan words from sort of English and French, um, which was again another part of what they viewed as modernizing, maybe kind of a diplomatic move. That's just a theory in 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 sort of international relations. But um, the the loan words from English and French. I was speaking to a Turkish person who once said to me, "Yes, um, we're very lazy. If we don't have a word for something in Turkish, we take it from another language and just say it with a Turkish accent." Um, so you say this, you say this, but do you know how many people do this in languages? This has been such a debate on social media and stuff that I've been seeing recently. Like, for example, the word computer. Right? It's a it's a mm. modern word. Like we don't have a word in for example and again I keep bring Poland up only because this is this is another language I'm immersed in. You know, instead yeah. of saying computer we're compiled them. Yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. It's yeah, I agree. I mean 
certain words. I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd love to go back to do an experiment to sort of like ancient languages and see, you know, if Latin had to have a word for computer, would it just be the word for abacus or something? You know, I'm, I'm no idea. Any linguists out there, we need to do a new project because again, it's so, so ancient Slavic, for example, you know, Russian, Polish, the languages of every language is developed. So that might be an interesting project to look at from there. Yeah. How do you say, how do you say computer or gigabyte in cuneiform? You know, what would we, what would that be? <laughs> gigabyte. Or for example, the most recent ridiculous one that I had was a friend called me up. She's like, uh, I'm going to go, uh, for Trakia. I'm like, what the fuck is a food truck? Like, what is that? She's like, not food truck, you know, the vans. The food, food truck. Like, Do you mean food truck? Actually, a food truck. I'm like, Jesus H. Christ. <laughs> for fun etymology, torpedo comes from the Latin word for um, electric, wa- electric ray. How do the Latin, how would they have a word for ele- electric ray, I suppose, yeah. Huh. Yeah, something like torpedo, torpedoes or something. And- <laughs> That's really cool because I'm learning Latin right now, so I I, I actually love that. <laughs> I took it, God. Yeah, I love that's it. why they call torpedoes fish. <laughs> what? My favourite thing with a torpedo was a meme I saw recently that was just that was just a torpedo and it had painted on the side as per my last email, and I was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> as Alina's managed to shoehorn Poland in twice, I'm going to shoehorn in the German Navy because uh... obviously the battle cruiser. Yeah, 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 whatever. German battlecruiser Goben turns up in uh, Constantinople in 1914 and is renamed, I'm going to get a massive pronunciation, but the Yava Sultan Selim. Was he any, was any, any, was he anyone cool? <laughs> Yavuz Sultan Selim. Yeah, Yavuz. That would be, yeah. Wow. Which, what was the German name you said of, of, of that ship? Goben. Goben. Yeah. No, um, Yavuz Sultan Selim, he was, uh, Selim the first. So, um, early 1500s, um, Sultan. Known as, uh, Selim the Grim or Selim the, the Resolute. Yeah, he was one of the sort of, um, early 16th century, you know, spending a lot of time, I mean, very short reign, but spending a lot of time conquesting, um, for example, he took the Mamluk Sultanate of Egypt. So, the Levant, Egypt itself, that kind of thing, which was a, a significant difference to the empire. So, yeah, he was, he was one of the big sort of, um, early Ottoman sultans and, uh, and caliphs. So, yeah, that's, that's who that was named for. Cool, I'll take that. <laughs> you know what? We're running, we're, we're gossiping too much. Let's, let's move on. There's too much to talk about. There Sorry. Is, there is let's too much. Move to talk about. Let's There's move on. Let's move on. Right. So, because Chris was supposed to ask this question, but I'm going to jump in and get in the way right now, because I can. Uh, is the, you talked about the length of basically the Ottoman Empire, which is about nearly 700 years, but it's also incorporated in a lot of, let's say, modern day countries, which had its mm-hmm. own languages, it's had its own culture and everything else. How is such a large empire literally be able to sustain itself with so many different cultures and everything else? Well, I mean, you see, you see a lot of, um, countries that were sort of former Ottoman territories, particularly, um, in my experience, Eastern Europe, Bulgaria, Romania, things like that. They've got this very great pride of, you know, we threw off the Ottoman oppressors and, and things like that. Um, but they did, I mean, they did maintain an identity under the Ottomans. Cause if you look at Ottoman methods of conquest, 
partly to make it easier for the Ottomans to administrate and partly to make it easier for Ottoman rule to be accepted, they would incorporate a lot of the pre-existing forms of rule and government, a lot of the logistical systems would just be kept um, when the Ottomans took over um, um, a country, sort of the same hierarchies and things like that, they would just put their little regional overseers in there. And they also had um, a process of where you could be a freely practicing Christian if you just you just had to pay a particular tax um, to for being a non-Muslim. And then you know Christians, Jews, whatever, all these minorities within the empire, you know they were existing, and that was um, it was known as I think it's the Jizya tax. Um, and I came across a lot of very interesting papers from the 18th century with people asking if they could pay the tax rather than in coin in material goods. So this one guy's like, I've got an olive grove, can I contribute oil to my local mosque instead of, you know, paying in cash and that kind of thing. But um basically, yeah, as um I mean you could you could exist, obviously, you know, being occupied is not cool. You know, there's 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 all kinds of things like churches could only be built to a certain height, for example, um, that kind of thing. And of course, you know, colonization occupation a lot of horrible things happen but um in general they they really kind of if it wasn't broke they didn't fix it and as i said they were sort of masters of the of the sort of hiring in help so if they saw a talented administrator they'd be like hey i see you're really good at this thing why don't you come and do it for us and we'll pay you kind of thing you know such as bringing in barbarossa in the navy sort of same principle with a lot of um government and then you've got the Janissary Corps, who like was my my thesis topic, but also the the system of sort of recruitment and education of young boys and men for the Janissary Corps. They kind of all went through uh, a palace education, then they kind of like split off into two possible careers. So you either went into the Janissary Corps and became a soldier, or you went to become an administrator or a page or something like that. And some of these boys even wound up being Grand Vizier. So they did, they recruited, they educated they outsourced quite a lot and I think it's an amazing juggling trick to keep all those balls in the air because you know as you say we're going from somewhere like Egypt to somewhere like Bulgaria and further so yeah very complex very intricate sort of system of, of, of administration and bureaucracy which is why luckily we have so much documentary evidence they loved writing stuff down which is you know the archives are just bursting but yeah just really good administration. Yeah, now, how, how, what other kind of relations did the Ottomans have with the rest of the sort of major European and even Asiatic powers? Well, they spent a lot of their time at war with, as I said, the, uh, the Safavids, Iran, Persia, whatever you want to call it. Um, and this was something that was really interesting because the Ottomans were a Sunni state, Orthodox Islam, and the Safavids were um, Shias. And the idea that this division in different types of Islam was actually more of a contentious subject than the Ottomans fighting Christians. Like they didn't mind, you know, they, I think one account I read was that the Ottoman soldiers go more happily or with more enthusiasm to war against the Persians than against the Christians because it was like they're doing Islam but they're doing it wrong. Whereas they didn't really mind kind of if you're Christian or even what, I mean, what flavor of Christian, predominantly obviously Orthodox from, uh, former Byzantium, you, 
you've got Catholics in the Ottoman Empire, you've got all kinds. Um, you've got one very significant, one man who left us a diary who was the butler to the uh, British ambassador to Constantinople. He was a devout Baptist and he, he was able to practice when he was out there. No problem at all. So I did mention a shift between warfare to diplomacy and I really think we see that coming in late 1600s, early 1700s and again, I cannot fail but to see the significance of the failed second siege of Vienna and the Ottomans going okay, no more conquest towards Europe, let's you know, let's make this contact another way um, and we start seeing ambassadors going back and forth, we start seeing trade I mean, that existed before but from sort of late 1600s, early 1700s on, it really became sort of the prime currency of international relations with the West, which is why you can go read, you know, Robert Sutton's dispatches from when he was ambassador. You can read things like, um, as I said, Samuel Medley's diary, who was the, uh, the butler to Lord Kinnell, who was one of the other, um, ambassadors. Uh, Mary Wortley Montague, who was wife of an ambassador, wrote, Life on the Golden Horn, very much in line with sort of ladies' travel writing and travel memoirs at that time. Um, so yeah, we see, we see sort of accounts from tradesmen, accounts from diplomats, accounts from people go, people go on holiday and they go to visit. So yeah, it really becomes more, more soft power, less hard power as, as the centuries move on. Well, we've done a lot of talking about general. I mean, we could talk about this forever, though, because so much. <laughs> we could just talk about. But let's talk a little bit about your thesis, because you're talking yes. about the 18th century in Istanbul. Yes. Why, I mean, you've already told us why you chose the Ottomans. Why did you sp- pick this specific time period out of 700 years of possible different ways you could have gone? So, first of all, I got interested in the Janissaries. Again, my favourite book, The Historian, where they were talking about Dracula, and, you know, we'll talk about Dracula history another time, but just an offhand comment in that book that said he would have been an amazing Janissary made me go, hmm, Janissaries, and I kind of, like, honed in on that and looked at this group, this institution, this particular sort of group of the Ottoman army and became very interested in what defined a Janissary, which is how I came to looking at Janissary identity, because they were completely unique while being completely embedded within Ottoman society and being sort of present everywhere. But still, something about the title, the rank, the status of Janissary made the way they experienced every aspect of their life, from their religion to their trade to their family life, was unique. And I honed in on the 18th century, because even before I became interested in the Ottomans, I became interested in the 18th century because it's one of those kind of like on the cusp centuries where kind of everything's kind of up in the end and it's changing and it's a little bit unpredictable. It's kind of like that period between what you might say is definitively early modern in the 1600s and then we start seeing modernization and industrialization in the 1800s. But sort of the 17th century, um, sorry, 1700s, 18th century kind of all better off everything's is that period of change and to me that just made it a bit more a bit more exciting to focus on uh plus we've got sort of some key things janissaries are involved in in the 18th century there's um sort of the halil uprising um in the early 1800s that's often characterized as janissary uprising um and we see a lot more about them being more integrated into ottoman society and i wanted to focus on istanbul 
as a regional case study because we said the Ottoman Empire is very geographically di uh, diverse. And very often we say in the Ottoman Empire, what we mean is in Istanbul, because we've just said, you know, the governance of, of you know, different areas were often quite unique. So I kind of wanted to treat this imperial capital and to say, OK, what's going on in here? Yes, they're close to the administrative, the center of power, the domestic power structure. But what is the reality within the bounds of the city versus, you know, there's some fantastic regional case studies on Bosnia and things like that in the Ottoman Empire. But I wanted to get away from that generalization of this is the way it is in the capital, which means this is the way it is in the whole empire. So that gave me a nice, I'm not going to say manageable parameter for my thesis, because there's a lot about Istanbul and a whole century is is pretty big. Um, but, you know, it helped me set some parameters for sort of when I wanted to go a bit deeper. Um, so that's kind of how I wound up in Istanbul in the 18th century, talking about Janissaries. And the anecdotes that come out of the archive, you wouldn't believe. Oh, give us an example. Come on, just one. Okay, so my favourite one, well, it's one of my favourites, there are many, is the wives of Janissaries, because they were, you know, being married, having children, there was more Turks in, in the court at this time. Um, and they, when the women would go to the hammam, the bathhouse, there was rivalry between the wives of soldiers in rival regiments. So, like, if my husband's in a regiment that is in a rivalry with your husband's regiment and we bump into each other in the hammam, we're going to have beef. And I think one of my favourite sort of accounts is the, the Janissary wives in the hammam, the uh, the wooden clogs that they would have in the hammam, they were literally throwing their shoes at each other, <laughs> West Side Story style, you know, out of loyalty to their husband's regiments versus versus the other regiments. So that, that was quite entertaining. I like that. So the next time I see, I don't know, I don't have a husband, but I'll invent one. Uh, the next time I see Alex, she's going to be on a different team and I'm going to throw my shoe at her. Alex, You're going to throw your shoe at yeah. Yeah, be careful, I'll be throwing my shoe at you. Yeah, so that's, that was one thing. But I say there's, 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 there's just many more. I mean, I was looking into Janissaries in trade and someone once asked me, who is your favourite Janissary? There's this one poor guy. I was looking at um, local court registers in the big Islamic library at Isam. And um I found one guy who he'd taken a shop and he was going to make, he was making like opium syrup. It was like a, a medicinal thing. That was what like his shop and his business were doing. So there's the entry of him sort of like taking over the business and paying all the fees and everything that's included, blah, blah, blah. And then I think the following year, somehow his shop gets burnt down, presumably because something went wrong with the making of the, of the opium. And he's like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna leave now because, you know, I'm like, you're either the unluckiest or most incompetent I've ever seen because you only kept your shop for a number of months per se. Poor guy. But yeah. Sounds very much like my luck. <laughs> <laughs> we, we kind of mentioned it briefly, but so where, where did the Ottoman Empire go and sort of how, how did it sort of all collapse? And it had nothing to do with the Germans in the First World War. <laughs> Oh, you decided that, have you? Um, <laughs> makes me feel better. <laughs> well, no, I mean they became they became what we know today as the Republic of Turkey. The Ottoman presence, I mean, it's still very present. They're still sort of very, very proud of their heritage and their history and things like that. And you see it through their tourist trade, through their pop culture. I mean, I don't. This isn't something I've specifically focused on, but I think you just need to look at all of the political upheavals that were going on globally 
um, in the 19th century, you know, we see large empires, you know, not lasting just globally. They start to go down 19th century, early 20th century. Then we have these huge world wars. And I think it just reached a point where the Ottomans had existed for so long. And to quote Monty Python, you know, now for something completely different, you know, we're in a, they're in a much more different world than they had existed in before and I think just something new I mean you can go into looking at the young turks and 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 all that kind of stuff and I mean you'd find a lot of details there as well so it's 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 kind of a legacy they carry on but they realized they needed to adapt to a modernizing world and so became the republic of turkey and uh that's kind of the key argument I came up with in my thesis that the janissaries were adapting to a changing world before they were lost altogether but that's my little defense of my Janissaries that they weren't. There's this argument, you know, purity and corruption and the idea that in the later centuries they were becoming corrupt because they took jobs that weren't in the army and they had families and they, you know, this and the other. And yeah, there were there were criminals among the Janissary Corps for sure. But um, in general, I kind of viewed it as an adaptation to the changing world. Because I said the 18th century is this period of huge change. And I think possibly... Again, not my time period, but the emergence of, of the Turkish Republic out of the Ottoman Empire was just an adaptation for, you know, the global stage they found themselves on. Right. Our final and last question of the evening, even though it's not evening or recording of the day. <laughs> Talk to us about the pop culture in this sense, because Netflix have not done, unless I don't know, there might be one I'm totally talking out of my asshole. They've not done a major feature thing like the Tudors or I don't know. Okay. The what was the other one? The The, Borgias. Yeah, they've done like loads of these sorts of things. From my memory, they've not done anything on the Ottomans. Well, they actually have. It's just a docudrama series. There's two seasons. It's called Rise of Empires. Oh, that's lame. It's docudrama. There's two seasons of it. But um, yeah, history and pop culture is kind of one of my pet projects, which I love studying. But um, yes, there was an Ottoman version of the Tudors. It's just all in Turkish. Uh, it's called Mutasha Musil or Magnificent Century, and it picks up with the reign of Suleiman the Magnificent. And it's very much focused on sort of Sultanate of women, his wives, and sort of his family in immediate circle. And I mean, it's going on. I think, I think, you know, they were going to do the entire Sultanate of Women. I know they've done a series for Kosem Sultan, who was one of the other significant um, women as well to a different Sultan. But um, the, the backlash has been, I mean, Erdogan himself spoke out against Mutasham Yuzil because he said, this is not the Sultan we know because it's showing him in the harem with his family, with women. He's like, you know, he was a warrior. He was on horseback and, you know, they didn't like this more human, I guess, version of of the sultans as being sort of men rather than being these untouchable heroic ideals. But also in post-Ottoman lands. So, for example, when I was looking into Mutashem Yuzil, I found, uh, I think one of was, I think it was one of the Arab airways that kind of bought the rights to show the episodes kind of on their little in-flight TVs because it had been popular. And also quite popular in areas of Eastern Europe, again, sort of post-Ottoman, you know, what were former Ottoman um, territories, nations that are very proud of, you know, speaking about the Ottoman oppressors and, 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 and very proud of sort of, you know, throwing off the Ottoman yoke, as it were. And then I found a forum that was for discussion of Turkish television shows, because Turks love their TV series. And there was one, I think it was a young man, and he was somewhere, he was either 
Bosnia or, or, or somewhere similar, I forget the exact country, but he said it's so weird to be bombarded by this sort of, yes, the Ottomans were, you know, these oppressive tyrants and we threw them off and our country's the greatest. Then my mum comes into the living room in the evening and says, get off the television, son, I want to watch my magnificent Suleiman because, you know, they love, they love this, this, this TV show. Um, and is it probably about as accurate to real history as the Tudors is? I'm going to say it's very romanticized. There's a focus on sort of love stories and, 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 and things like that, which, you know, you, you, you want to make it compelling viewing. But what it has done, which is what pop culture has always done for me, is got people interested, like reinvigorated and interested in Ottoman history. So what, um, Turkish booksellers have said, you know, since the show aired, people come in and ask, do you have history books about her and Sultan, about Suleiman the Magnificent? I want to know more about it because they'd seen it on this huge TV show. So that's sort of the, the, the biggest pop culture legacy. I mean, they have, if you go into a Turkish bookstore, you know, they have their sort of historic novels, you know, their Turkish versions of, um, or rather Turkey's answer to like Philippa Gregory and Hilary Mantle and all that. Like they're there, but they're, I think, less well known than, than, sort of the screen adaptations let's say and then there was the um the huge movie about the taking of constantinople and my kind of one existing memory of it was um watching it and watching the armies kind of like line up at the wall of constantinople you know very very dramatic very and i'll say again very lord of the rings and i was watching this with my byzantinist friend and my husband just sort of came up looked at the screen and said Meanwhile, at Helm's Deep, the alliance of elves and men eagerly await dwarven reinforcements. And I was like, yeah, because that's what it looked like. It looked like a Lord of the Rings sort of battle scene. Um, but I mean, very prevalent in modern Turkish culture, for sure. Again, n- not as prevalent in our culture. Hopefully with globalization, that'll change. But again, Ottoman history, not very prevalent in our curriculum yet. Getting better with the rise of global history. So I think, you know, where one goes, the other will possibly follow. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, we do have, I mean, there are historic novels in the English language written about the Ottomans down the centuries, but um, again, nothing really significant. They tend, um, yeah, there'll be things like the religion or the siege, which are sort of, you know, sort of medieval, not sword and sandal, but, you know, like swords and knights and armies and big, you know, I'm not going to say boys' books, but you know what I mean? Um, that kind of thing. And then there's the overly romantic things like the Avery Gate by Katie Hickman, where a European woman winds up in the Ottoman harem. But again, the focus is more on the characters than the historical context for a lot of European novels. So yeah, I say, I hope, I hope it'll, it'll come back. Um, I hope to see more sort of like in-depth thought out representations of Ottoman history in, in our pop culture, because they certainly have it in Turkish culture. So yeah, this has been really good. We've covered a ludicrous amount of history. We've we've taught Alina that Barbara Russell was a real person and not something the Germans made up for fun. <laughs> and we managed to talk about boats, so I'm happy. I don't think I don't think you could make up Barbara Russell. Just his reality is too. You couldn't make him up if he didn't exist. No, no. So yeah, anyone with a red beard is awesome. Considering I'm in shape for three days. Alyssa Beckett King will be glad to hear that. <laughs> but, uh, th- thanks for coming on and uh, and talking to us about this much neglected period of history. Any time, I say it was probably a bit of a garbled overview because I was like, here is almost seven hundred years of history. So if you want to ever break it down into something focused and more manageable, that would probably be a bit more coherent and 
educational than just look at the Ottomans, they're really interesting. Well, no, listen, you're going to come back when we do the Siege of Vienna because I have, I've been dying to find someone to do that for me for, for pole position. I really want to do pole position. I'm very excited. We can do that because it would just be you and me. We can gobble on for as long as we want to, which is fantastic. You're going to come in and do another one. I'm not going to tell everybody what you're coming back to do because that's going to be a surprise because you're going to bring Spoiler. No spoilers, but very exciting. Looking forward to it. Well, very exciting. And, and, and something that's very heavily involved in pop culture and has been for the past, what, 100 years, really. So And which, which has a surprise Ottoman connection as well. Exactly. So you're going to come back and do that. Mm. Uh, we've got a long list because you can come back and do as much as you want, really. We don't have much on the Ottomans. So whenever you fancy coming to do a, a 45 minute chat with us or something random, you are very much welcome. Yeah, I'll just be in your inbox going, I have found this random angle on Ottoman history. Do you want to know about it? <laughs> just give me an excuse to just spurt all this random stuff I've taken in at you. Get, get, get all that shit out of your head. I'm in, I'm in. Listen, Gemma, thank you so much for joining us and we'll get you back on really soon. No, absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book.